So, Madhurya Kadambani, which is, as we discussed last time, sometimes likened to an under, full understanding of the text, will guide the sadhika in understanding his spiritual position in a way that would hopefully give us a comprehensive understanding of the the practice of sadhana bhakti. As you know, devotional practice generally is divided into three categories, devotional service in practice, devotional service in ecstasy, and devotional service in pure love of God. Devotional service is also broadly categorized as having two specific approaches, Vaidhi Bhakti, which is a practice that's based on scriptural presentation and what's presented there as the determining factor is to how we can engage in spiritual life. So the determining factor for the Vaidhi Bhakti is, is it in the scripture? Is it is it something that's supported by the evidence of scripture? Vaidhi Bhakti and Raganuga Bhakti. Raganuga Bhakti is is that approach to devotional service which actually wherein the sadhika, the practitioner, has developed a taste for spiritual life as as an objective of his existence. So these two categories uh, are there and for the most part uh, except for those rare exceptions to the rule uh, the, the, the path of Vaidhi Bhakti is engaged upon primarily by the Sadika, by the practitioner of devotional service uh, under the good direction of uh, someone who's actually on the platform of having a taste. And that person is generally the guru. And his associates and other devotees, advanced devotees, who, who have come to also develop a taste. It's hard to give something you don't have. I may want to give you a million dollars, but if all I have is a hundred thousand dollar bank account, it's going to be hard for me to give you that money. Now, if I was Bill Gates and I had millions upon millions or billions, for him, a million dollars is, he could write a check. I couldn't even borrow that much money to give you the million. I, I don't have so what I don't have, I can't give. Well, you may say, well, then why are you speaking for? Uh, why, why are you wasting our time? You can't really give us anything because you don't, you're saying of your own, of what you're saying yourself, you don't have 
you can't give what you don't have. And I've seen what a what a what a real devotee is, and then you're far from the mark. But still, under the umbrella of a Vaidhi approach, someone who actually doesn't have hasn't yet developed a full taste, still he has something. So what he does have is shareable. And he can also repeat what he's heard. And he may not even have realized yet what he's heard, but he has full faith in in what he's heard. And perhaps the speaker has more faith than I have. And that in and of itself is, is to his credit and to my benefit as a listener. So it's... Uh, but for the most part, we need to use fine discrimination. We need to hear from somebody who has, has actually developed some taste. But then again, that's a difficult thing, isn't it? How do we judge what taste someone has? We can judge their activities. And we can say, well, it appears he's, he's, he's a good devotee. He's tasting something. He has something. Uh, I, I can see that his practice is, is, is steady and uh, his uh, conduct is, is good. He's a moral person. A lot of spiritual life is measured with the ruler of morality, is it not? So we see. And it's supported that that, via, that approach is supported. Vacho uh, Vegam, Manasakrade Vegam. You're familiar with this verse. From Rupa Goswami, the beginning of his Upadeshamrita. Uh, our spiritual master named the book The Nectar of Instruction. One who controlled the urge to speak, the mind's demands, the actions of anger, the urges of the tongue, belly, genital. He's qualified to make disciples all over the world. So, these pushings, the controlling of the pushings, if someone basically has command of that, then, then he must be getting his nourishment, his taste for life somewhere. And it's not where the majority of us get our taste for life from in material life. If we don't have a taste, if we're not being nourished by our, our, our activities, how long will we be able to sustain ourselves? We all need nourishment. Every day we need nourishment. We can't go very long without it. Two or three days. But to speak of water, you can't live without water for very long. So we need to be nourished. So in life we need to be nourished, don't we? We all need to be nourished. We need to be fed with something that keeps our motor running. Right? So we have to have some food and we have to have some motivational factor. Within this world, our motivation basically comes from tasting something that we feel is sweet and pursuing pursuing that. And it can be in any field you could have a, a, a taste for 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 being being a musician, and then you may have a more specific taste for being a violinist. And I want to be a violinist. Well, that's good. 
wanting to be a violinist and being violinist may require a further refinement of that taste you may need to go to a teacher well first you might need to buy a violin well first you might need a job to make the money to buy the violin but there's all these things and if my taste is strong enough if my desire I may want a beautiful wife I want to want a big mansion I may want to run a big company I may want to be I may run, want to run a big army, but what? I may want to run to the bottom of the ocean or to the top of the sky. I may have so many wants. And in life, that is generally the driving force. We're driven. We're driven by these desires, whatever they may be. In material life, they come and go, ups and downs. They change, continually changing. They come into existence in our mind. They stay there for some time. We may pursue them and fulfill them as much as we can. But then ultimately, it doesn't nourish us anymore. It doesn't last long. I mean, I've heard of company, couples that have stayed together for, what, 80, 90 years, 80 years. I mean, that's a, that's a good run. Musicians that have played one instrument their whole life and become a virtuoso at that. And sometimes you even you come across some awkward thing in the, in, the, uh, in the Internet and you see somebody who's just a little teeny little thing and there he is conducting an orchestra and you know well he couldn't be doing the way he's doing that on this little video he couldn't be doing that unless he was doing that in his last life so maybe that nourishment that taste is coming into another life maybe he didn't get it out of his system because basically in material life it's a matter of finding something we want working towards it having it nourish and feed that desire that we developed in relationship with the material energy and then ultimately, unfortunately we become bored with it it, it just, you know may last a few lifetimes but ultimately there's only so many times you can play the same song and I'm sure when Mick gets up there on the stage and somebody screams out satisfaction somewhere in him at this stage <laughs> he cringes not again at a certain point it's like oh, I've had enough so that nourishment it loses its taste and the senses drive us elsewhere well, what's spiritual is this going to happen with spiritual nourishment Am I going to have my fill of it? Is it? Am I going to reach a stage where I'm satiated? Where I'm like Mick on the stage and inside I'm cringing? I've, I've, I've exploited everything there is to experience. Is that possible? No. It's on a different level. It's different. It's something that if we are to believe scripture, if we are to believe the saints and sages who have gone there and done that and are 
continually experiencing that, then no, spiritual life is not like material life. We will not become satiated. We will not become filled up. We will not become bored. And we will not look for something else. It doesn't matter how much of Krishna we get. It's never going to be enough. It's never going to completely satisfy. Well, it be. Yes, it will. That's the, an interesting thing, though, now, isn't it? What we, when we hear about spiritual life, what do we hear? Not only does it fully say, nourish us and satisfy us, but we still want more. And there is more. And it's unlimitedly increasing. Be, again, beyond comprehension. Madhurya Kadamani, it's going to give us a, an ability to see what is, how is our spiritual life taking shape? How am I becoming Krishna's devotee? What's contributing to that? What's interfering to, with that? And how can I, how can I perfect the perfect process of devotional service in my life? The process is perfect, but my practice, my sadhana, which is either fueled by scripture, Vaidhi Bhakti, or fueled by Raganuga Bhakti, I've developed a taste. Now there's a distinction between that taste, Raganuga, and and the stages of progressive taste, Ruchi. We're talking about somebody that, that already and when we look at look at progressive sadhana bhakti as we're going to step through unsteady practice, anista bhajana kriya, tanista bhajana kriya, if we look at that the way Vishwanath presented it in Madhurya Kadamati, we, we, we want to come to a plane where we can actually perceive and acquire the discrimination. When we talk about discrimination here, we're talking, we could talk about the same. Discrimination is that factor which, which lets me determine what is the proper course of action. I've been thinking a lot about this in relationship to Madhurya Kadambani and how Vishwanath presented it. And what's the best way to employ this? I'm sure there's many approaches, but one thing came to mind. And that was, if we look at devotional service and see it as, we make that distinction, as it's been presented to us time and again, by Guru Maharaj, that distinction of subjective and objective. So let's, if we take that approach and look at all of our activities in relationship to that dis, that dis, discriminating between those factors. And it takes some fine discrimination. Now what I mean by that is all the practices of sadhana bhakti that are coming to us, specifically the ninefold practices and the, the anything that supports those nine, if we look to our practices of sadhana bhakti, we should see it in relationship to actually acquiring 
a subjective objective. We want to develop our spiritual life. So we want to we want to be able to discriminate. We have to be able to discriminate in such a way that we can start seeing our activities and we can say, this is working for my spiritual life and this is in, in opposition to that. Try to look at it in relationship to wanting to play the violin. Oh, she doesn't. You keep looking at me. <laughs> You're the one that brought it up one day. <laughs> back somewhere in the back of that cranium is this little desire. Surfaces time from time to time in our conversations. So I mock fun at her as she mocks fun at me, and I couldn't explain how it works. But. <laughs> Around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't fiddle around with it too much. <laughs> Always try to take the temperature of your activities. Am I really doing this and is it really helping me develop my spiritual existence? And look at, look at it specifically in relationship to that objective. We really need to establish that as the objective. To obtain our objective what? Like Guru Mahar says, if you want to go to India, you say, hey, I want to go on pilgrimage. Yeah, well, do you have a passport? Do you have a visa? Do you have any money for the ticket? No, I have none of those things. Then what are you talking about? Right? So similarly, when we look to our spiritual life, I want to be with in Vraj, I want to be with Krishna, I wanna I wanna I wanna be, you know, just enjoying Krishna. Okay, what part of Krishna do you want to enjoy? I think you gotta reframe the question. Where all of a sudden we're in a enjoying mood. Well that's not the mood there. The mood there is I want to, I want Krishna to enjoy. That is the consciousness of everyone there. How is Krishna going to enjoy his day? Is he going to enjoy the food I prepare for him, the way I bathe him? Is he going to enjoy? Is he going to enjoy the the humorous jokes I'm telling him, or how I run with him towards to take care of the cows, or is he going to enjoy? You know, the tryst we're going to have in the evening. How's Krishna going to enjoy? So, there again, we're turning the whole, our whole psychology, and specifically in devotional service, this has to be avoided. The, the psychology that spiritual life, although it is the topmost enjoyment to be free of all suffering and to be all these other objectives are there, we don't find that when we look at a presentation coming from Sri Chaitanya and his, his, his followers, do we? No. I, I simply want to serve, serve favorably. What can I do to serve Anya Bilasitasunya? How can I serve favorably? How can I make Krishna happy? 
So that is my subjective existence. How can I make Krishna the supreme enjoyer? Well, he's already the supreme enjoyer. Well, yes, he is. How can I make Krishna the supreme enjoyer of me? Well, that's a whole other... Then we're looking at a whole other thing. What can I do that he is pleased with me? Let's start with just be. Can he make it to where he's... To where I'm not... I'm not on the wrong side. That I'm on the right side. The right side being... I don't want to be a taker. I want to be a giver. I don't want to... I don't want to be with Krishna because what Krishna can do for me. I want to be with Krishna because of what I can possibly, somehow or other, give Krishna. No, I actually I don't want to do that. Is because I know that's that's beyond my capabilities because I've heard of what his his associates are like. So that's. That's beyond my capability, but maybe I can help them, serve them in some way. But I'm not there with them. I'm here. So where do I? Where do I? Where do, Where does my service go then? How do I? How do I serve in such a way that 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 Krishna can take some pleasure? Well, let me serve somebody that I know is serving him better than I am. Because if he's serving better than I am, if he's more qualified, if he has, he has, he's in a better spiritual position than I am, then, then by serving him or her, then Krishna may take notice of my service. How to really come to a to a position of, of seeing where we are, of engaging in a process, and of of truly developing that sense of our inner self. We should see that. you know, Because in the outside world, so many things are pulling. But what are we doing inside? So we're, you know, we should look at, we should be able to judge everything, measure everything by that yardstick. That I'm doing something, whatever it may be, and... I'm doing this to develop my true serving self. I want to. I want to please Krishna by this activity. So we're talking what? We're talking fine discrimination. How am I going to develop the fine discrimination? How can I judge? How can I make that determination that what I'm doing today is actually going to be, is going to de- work towards? development of that inner life. And I think there's a couple things that 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 are practically practical things practically applied to our consciousness and to our activities that will help in this regard. And that is that is coming to a level of discrimination based on the directions of our spiritual master. We're actually seeing. Well, yes. If I am what I is what I'm doing right this moment pleasing to him. It's a little easier for us, isn't it, when we have the spiritual master 
he's the external manifestation, but really, you know, he doesn't know what I'm thinking. Well, that's a blessing. My gosh. <laughs> I would be in so much trouble if he knew I was what I was thinking all the time. So it's like Krishna's made us perfect arrangement here. Instead of him coming down as the spiritual master, which he has done, but at least he's coming in a way that it's he appears to be like almost like one of us. Almost. Well, not very much almost, but at least he has a human body. No, he doesn't well well it doesn't it says he doesn't have that in the Shastra too. Looks like a human body, acts like a human body. You know, but it's kind of a break. We're giving a break here. He's out in California right now, and I'm here. So, you know, if I didn't get up from Mogalarti, you know, the chances of him finding out are probably, probably pretty good for me. And here I am falling asleep while I'm chanting, and he's not here in the room chanting with me. So probably, you know, he's not going to be taking notice. What do we have to do? We have to learn fine discrimination. What's fine discrimination for us? Have you ever seen those cartoons? In the cartoon, you have one little fellow on one shoulder and another little fellow on the other shoulder. I don't know if you... Maybe they don't even make these cartoons. This is when I was growing up. One guy had a tail, a pointy tail, and, you know, he had a trident and horns, and the other had a halo. One's talking in one ear and one's talking in the other ear and you're there like, hmm. You know, this one has the upper hand and that one has the upper hand. But really, fine discrimination means maybe I'm thinking of how, how would this be pleasing or displeasing to my spiritual master? Well, that's a pretty good discrimination to develop. Do I, but how, how do I apply that? Well, we apply it. The more we apply it, the more effect it's going to have. It's like a medicinal ointment that we can develop that kind of a consciousness. I'm falling asleep. Well, maybe I should stand up. Yeah, I didn't get up for Mangalarti. Well, maybe I should have set the alarm. I'm really not paying attention to what I'm doing out here in the woods right now and uh, you know my mind's a hundred miles away thinking of a hundred different other things like uh, maybe I'd like to go to a movie this weekend how would how would if my spiritual master could hear my thoughts and observe my activities what would be his reaction well luckily for us even when, he, when he's here he stays in his room most of the time and once in a while, he'll come and let us do some service, physical service to his body. That's nice. Come around and enthuse us. But even here, what a, what a task it would be to live 24-7 right in the presence of your spiritual master and serve him intimately in that way. You know? Uh, could you do that? Could you handle it? If you couldn't handle it, then you need to get to that plane. We need to discriminate in our activity, accepting what's favorable, rejecting what's unfavorable. We need to gradually work up to that plane, don't we? Where we could be 
with our spiritual master 24-7. And he would be completely satisfied and happy with our with with what we're doing for him. And in that way we could we could know that well that's 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 the crux of the matter, isn't it? To selflessly serve without any desire other than giving that selfless service. So Madhurya Kadamani, we're looking to develop this kind of discrimination. The kind of discrimination which lets us see where we are and lets us know how to approach this sadhana bhakti in such a way that we come to a platform of steadiness. That's our first major plateau in devotional life, is steadiness. And its characteristic is an amazing characteristic, isn't it? What's its characteristic? Absolute and total what? Humility. Humility beyond comprehension. I mean, really, for us, when we talk about devoid of all sense of false prestige, ready to offer all respects to others, desiring no respect, low and strong the street, more tolerant in a tree, like a blade of grass. I mean, these are heavy accolades, are they not? What a sense to have. And from there, it just becomes, it is just multiplied. This sense of humility, of total dependence. Just look, just look at the items of surrender. It's just, they're just saturated with humility. And look to the characteristic of Raj Bhakti. The residence there it saturates their entire existence is humility to the utmost and this this is the plateau from which we we're gradually coming out of sadhana of something that's forced to something that takes over our existence just like it would in our material life to be nourished and obtain some objective for our personal satisfaction. So we aspire to this stage. This stage of utter humility. Utter humility to the point that everything else falls away and our whole existence is based on a subjective approach to life. Everything I'm doing is to develop this inside. Even when I'm going outside. Even when I'm working outside, what I'm working outside is to develop inside. What I'm doing outside is simply for this. And if we can do that, if we can live in the presence of the guru, now, when I was growing up, there was a song, In the Presence of the Lord. So we talk about that. How, how, how is that? To, to live in that kind of subjective consciousness that at every moment we're aware 
of our activities to the extent that they're all directed towards developing and nourishing that spiritual aspect of my existence. So we started, we saw Vishwanath's approach, his first approach is the first verse is, is a glorification of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and specifically Sri Chaitanya's nourishment of the nine Angas of Bhakti pointing out that his method of nourishing these nine main practices of Bhakti is Harinam Sankirtan so much so that if we look to what he says in Chaitanya Charitamrita, what do we find out? All the Angas of Bhakti are accomplished simply by this chanting. They're all accomplished. So we went over that those verses last class. Now, the second verse of Madhurya Kadamani, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, really praises what has been accomplished by Srila Rupa Goswami. Because what he's done is he's taken what Srila Rupa has given in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and he's, he's analyzed it and presented it in such a way that it can further nourish. He's unpacked it a little bit further for us so that we can digest it. And that is the position of the guru and all the great sadhus. They're there to take what's there and, and unpack it and present it in a way that we can understand it and make it relevant in our life and our spiritual development. So the, the verse, we'll start with that, of... To Rupa Goswami, I'll just read the English. This is interesting. Vishwanath says, though previous Mahajans had taken shelter of Bhakti Devi, now by the mercy of Sri Rupa Goswami, fortunate persons attain the intelligence to realize Bhakti in its rasa form. I constantly pay my obeisances under Sri Rupa Goswami, who is very dear to Hari. So this carries forward the theme that Vishwanath established in the first verse, doesn't it? This specific characteristic of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Sankirtan movement. And the fact that he came to what? to break open the storehouse and distribute freely what no other incarnation has done. No other manifestation of the Supreme Lord has given freely what? Bhakti Ras. The essence of the spiritual exchanges that are enjoyed by Krishna. Bhakti is one thing, but Bhakti Ras, oh, that's, that's something else. To actually freely give access to that is the byproduct of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's wanting to taste it as Radha tasted it. 
So in wanting to taste, he's freely distributing. So in, it's interesting that the commentary that we're drawing some of this content for these classes from is by Ananda Das Babaji, who's a Gaudiya Vaishnav, but not directly in our family. He brings out an interesting point when it comes to Rupa Goswami. I thought, I thought it was quite... Why Rupa? Why was it Rupa that Sri Chaitanya singled out? He brings out an important, uh, important and interesting fact. It could have been Swarup Dhamma. I mean, Krishna can empower whoever he wants, can he not? He, he, he's not limited in his ability to empower anyone to do anything. So his his ability to 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 do that is it's free. He's free. Why Rupa then? Why not Rup Damodar? Why not Ramananda Roy? Were they not qualified? Why not Sanatan? Why why Rupa? So he breaks out an important point. Let's look at what is the position of Rupa. Who is Rupa? Goswami. Rupa Manjari. What's the position of Rupa Manjari? Well, she's in a very particular serving position. If you look at if you look at Krishna's relationships with his gopis, that's not the same as the relationship with the Manjaris. The Manjaris are are more subordinate. So the way. The way it's brought out by Ananda in his purport is the fact that Rupa Goswami's position is such that he's completely, she is completely subordinate, a complete subordinate maid servant, not like a lover, not like a friend, but and in that, in that level of complete. Humility and service, which is unexcelled. The Manjaris hold that position of being allowed into the most intimate circle of exchange of the Supreme. Because of that unassuming position, therefore, it reinforces the whole process of devotional service that Rupa Goswami is the primary spokesperson for Sri Chaitanya's movement. Primary. And a couple verses bring this out from Chaitanya Charitamrita. These are spoken by Sri Chaitanya himself. He said, Rupa met me at Prayag. Knowing him to be a very worthy person, I bestowed my mercy upon him. I then empowered him with transcendental <clears throat> power giving while giving him instructions. So Sri Chaitanya is saying, I specifically empowered him. You should also instruct him in the secrets of divine rasa. So that sweet subordination that Rupa Goswami has as Rupa Manjari contributed to the fact that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu made him the primary spokesperson for the process of sadhana bhakti. Then, with such empowerment, 
the, the pen of Rupa Goswami came to life. And there's a very interesting verse spoken in this regard, spoken by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but it's in the discussion where they're, they've gone to Rupa's hermitage and Ramananda Roy's grabs some of his poetry and he's reading it and he's becoming, he's like, he's, he's just overwhelmed. In that discussion, again, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu brings out the specific quality of Rupa Goswami that he's received from his empowerment. I met him at Prayag. Again, he says that. He says, where I was fully satisfied with his attributes. His poetry is sweet and pleasing and is embellished, embellished with literary ornaments. Now listen to this next sentence. It's far out. Without such poetic skill, propagation of divine flavors is impossible. All of you benedict him with your mercy so that he can constantly describe the Vraj pastimes and the nectar of divine love. So the specific quality that he gave to Rupa Goswami is what? He can liter his literature, his approach, his his approach, not just the approach itself, everything about the approach. So much so that what? How much is his handwriting itself, his calligraphy praised? I forget the order, but what's it say? It looks like... Uh, like pearls. Hmm? Like pearls on, uh, on a string or something like that. Mm. Exceptional. So this literary skill of being able to describe the highest in a way that... I mean, we know from looking at Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and so much is presented there. It's like, I mean, if you look at it... It's like a huge science text, isn't it? It's like, wow, all this stuff. One verse, Sadao Shraddha Tasadu Sangha Oh my gosh, I'm thinking about it, all these stages and all these Anyabilasita Sunyam Janakarmajanavri Tam. I mean this one verse which is embodying all that is the essence of unalloyed pure devotional service that's pleasing to Krishna although Krishna may not be pleased by it. Well, what do you mean? Well, the discrimination, the way he's worded that one verse lets the sadhikas, those that want devotional service, see that you could be in a confrontational relationship with Krishna, which is giving him pleasure, but it's not pure devotional service because your objective, your, your intent is not to please Krishna. It's to kill him. But he likes a good fight. So that's not devotional service. We don't call that devotional service. Although it's pleasing to Krishna. When he fights with Kamsa or Jarasandra or Ravana, it's pleasing to him. Or we look at Mother Yasoda, who's feeding Krishna and the milk's boiling over and she she gives up her direct service 
which is pleasing to Krishna. But her doing that, which appears and makes Krishna cry, where's my milk? What are you doing? It's bringing tears to his eyes and it's pleasing. It's, it's accepted as pure devotional service because the objective is, is ultimately properly situated, her desire. So we look at one verse, you know, one or two verses. You look at all these verses together from Bhakti Rasamrita Siddha, you see what Rupa Goswami's done and, and the depth. So all this technical knowledge is there, but what? It's written in such perfect prose and poetry that it captures our heart. As much as the heart can be captured by words on a page, by giving them, presenting them in a way that, that captures the materialistic mind. Any questions? I'm Yes, sir. What is the position of uh, Sanatan Goswami then? Rupai is Rupamajari. Sanatan, can you remind me? Do you remember? Do I, what do you say at the end? I didn't hear. Sanatan Goswami, do you know what is his position in, uh, in Krishna Lila? Rati Manjari. Rati Manjari? He's a Manjari. All six of the Goswamis are Manjaris. So is there like a distinction between different Manjaris? Like they have more intimacy, some of them they are more intimate than others? Or because they are like Manjaris, they are in one category pretty much? I mean, everyone has their own unique position. They're not all one, no. I'm sure that they all have specific characteristics that that are pleasing to Radha or Krishna in a specific way. Uh, and if we look at the Goswamis, they are the architects of the Sampradaya, and specifically Rupa de- deals with, with, with sadhana, with our practice, uh, through it, through all the stages, but he's referred to as the uh, uh, Abhideya, Master Acharya of Abhideya, and the, the Goswami that encoded that. Uh, I can tell you one other thing that my spiritual master wrote to one of my god sisters way back in the 60s. And although we can't find any corroborating uh, information, in fact, some would say that uh, you know it, it, it's it's trying to put it in perspective may be difficult but uh, hmm. uh, Srila Prabhupada said in a letter to Jadarani in the late 60s that uh, not all the Goswamis were uh, Nichisiddhas uh, that uh, only Rupa and Raghunath hmm. so the others may have become perfect in Sri Chaitanya's presence I'm sure others would take exception to that comment, but I thought I'd throw it in there. It may have some bearing, if it. But as I said, we we can't find anything to support that statement by Prabhupada. But he must have said made it for a reason. Is my sense of it. 
I was wondering because the, you quoted this devotee from Mother Line, uh, Ananda Das Babaji, and this was his point that the Drupa Manjari was uh, close with with intimate pastimes of Radha and Krishna, that he was able to like you know give the process from like A to Z. Mm-hmm. Th- there is nothing what he was not aware of it, or you know from like the smallest to the to the the most intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I was wondering what is the position of Sanatana Goswami if, if, if Rupa Goswami has... Well, he's referred to as the Sambanda Acharya and that teaches us all the inner relationship and he also is, has given us the essence of Bhagavatam. He's taken the essence of the essence in his Brihat Bhagavatamrita. So, I mean, they all have their place in, in uh, their practicing their... Their siddhas presenting themselves as sadhikas for our benefit, mm-hmm. and they're giving us the roadmaps. Yeah, I was just wondering if uh, Rupa Manjari is specially favored by Krishna and, and Shrimati Radharani. That's well, I'm pretty sure that most of the Goswami, all the Goswamis, are all perfectly favored by <laughs> by Radha and Krishna. I don't think those. We, we have a difficult time. Uh, a couple things I can say in that regard. Uh, one thing that my spiritual master said, he said, there will always be somebody greater and somebody lesser. You're never going to be in a situation where there's somebody, you know, always. So that's always there. Spiritual or material world. Always greater or lesser. But when we look to the Vaikuntha attitude, well, again, we come back to Dunya. We come back to to that sense of all, you know, ultimate humility. That's that's everyone there lives in that consciousness. So there's no, they're not looking like, uh, you know, even you take Kumar, he's going from one place to another. There, even though he's still dressed out like a cowherd when he's in Vaikuntha, it's like. After a while, it's like yeah, maybe you want to change your dress, but there's no sense of there's no sense of discrimination like we have here in the true world. Definitely. Any other questions? I don't want to go too late. I've been told that I have to stay within my time frame. Thank you so very much. Hare Krishna.